Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cinematic Underdogs. I'm your host, Jordan Puga. And I'm your other host, Paul Keelan. And today we're here with Mikey. We're just going to call him Mikey because that's what his friends call him uh, with the Screen Nerds podcast. Really stoked to have him. It's his first time as a guest on Cinematic Underdogs. So welcome to the pod, Mikey. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really excited to uh, join y'all and talk a little uh, driven. Yeah, so Mikey reached out and I know he has a special anecdote, which I'm really interested to hear. And you know what? Let's just start it off right there. I'm curious because we never, you left it as a cliffhanger. You're like, I have this history with this film. So if you ever do an episode on it, I'm down to join. And I was like, heck yeah. So we're doing Stallone already. We just did Over the Top. We did Cliffhanger, which is going to come in a lot with this because it has the same director and Ernie Harlan. And so I'm curious to know, like, what is your history with this film? So when this released in uh, the spring of 2001, I was a junior in college and I watched the trailer for it, was excited, wanted to check it out. So I went to the theater and we had a fairly new theater uh, that just opened in the city where I went to college in and went in on a matinee and I was the only person in the theater. So this big, huge theater that, you know, pretty new. And I was the only one in there to see this film. That is rare. I guess not so rare for me, though, just because like I live in close proximity to this downtown theater that's really like poorly run. And so I swear, like once a month, I'm in like the theater with just me and my wife, like Lightyear last week. It was just us two in the 3D showing when Crimes of the Future came out, it was just us two. Wow. Um, but that's such a cool, weird feeling, right? I got to ask Mikey a yeah. question, actually, because yeah, like sure. you mentioned it was like a newer theater. So was that one of those like stadium ones when the stadium theaters were like first coming out? Yeah, it was yeah. actually. Okay. It was like, it, it was like yeah. one of those just like brand new theaters. So it had like that kind of stadium. Yeah. And even though it was like a, it wasn't a chain theater. It was like a, like a local kind of theater, uh, but it, it still had that stadium seating there. Okay. I see what you're saying. Cause that was a big deal at that time. Like I remember when, like when Paul and I grew up when the stadium theater, like had 22 stadium seats. Right. And we thought, Oh, it's so cool. The stadium seats. Every time you went, it was packed though, even for crappy movies. So I can see what you say. Like with that appeal, it's kind of weird at that time. Like you said, Paul, now you go to see any movie at the right time. <laughs> You'd be by yourself. But back in the day, that was really weird to be by yourself. Unless it was like a dollar movie was the only time you can go like way after and kind of be by yourself and catch a movie. So I get what you mean. Like to have a theater to yourself is actually be like a you know it's a unique experience yeah totally and i just want to know like did you kick your feet up were you able to like lounge out did you have a a seat with your popcorn what was what was it like what was the vibe like just by yourself it felt like it was like my own private screening of the film it was like i was like this special guy that you know i got to be able to watch this film all by myself and yeah i did actually prop my feet up on the back of the chairs in front of me just to get relaxed and everything it was it was good seats too it wasn't like the ones you have today where they recline back like automatically where you can push the button but you know it's, you can still get a good lean in and, and prop yourself up and watch the film I'm glad you brought that up though because a lot of these movies we're gonna get of course into like our box office list like we always do but a lot of these movies in this year was the year that theater opened up by us Paul. so a lot of my memories are tied to like stadium seating as this new cool thing so I like the train of thought we're already bringing into this discussion. I do too. And since we're into the box office, let's do that right now. So Driven opened up on the weekend of April 27th, 2001. 
It was a definitely early aughts box office we're going to be able to get into. And it's going to be fun because now you set the scene. Like I can feel the vibe of new stadium seats being by yourself in this theater. I can't imagine what Driven would be like by myself too. It'd be a hoot. But before we get into the film of the day, let's talk about some of the other films that are out at the time. So this list is odd. It's an odd list. I'm going to go over a few of them and then see if any of these stand out to, to both of you. So First place, right, for the opening weekend was Driven. So so it definitely took the crown, at least for its opening weekend. It only managed to get barely over 50 million worldwide in its entire theatrical run on a 90 plus million dollar budget. So it, it took a huge loss. I, I, that budget, I don't think it was even counting the marketing. Uh, it almost never does. So, I mean, this is a purely tax write-off type of film for Warner Brothers. It's a bomb. Um, but... Uh, in second place, we got Bridget Jones's Diary, and then we have Spy Kids. Along came a spider, and Crocodile Dundee in Los Angeles, rounding out the top five. Things get a bit better when we get lower. I know some oh, yeah. of these are going to draw the most conversation from us, but I I can sense the assignment on Jordan already. But before we get to the good ones, do any of these movies bring back any memories for anyone? I know last time, Jordan, we talked about Crocodile Dundee. Have you seen the Los Angeles one? No, I never went to go see this one in theaters. Just like I imagine I wanted to see the original theaters and I had the chance to see the sequel. And like I said, I actually used to like the Crocodile Dundee movie as a kid, but no, I didn't go see this one in theaters. And we'll get into why, like, as we said, when we get into more of the bottom of the list is kind of where I was at, I think, at this time. We'll get into that in a bit. But no, I didn't see that one. Did you? I did not either. I don't know if I've actually seen any Crocodile Dundee movie in full. I know they're always on TV for a period of time. And so I would see snippets of them, but I don't know if I've actually seen like a full sitting of any of that. But uh, Mikey, how about you? Did you get into the Spy Kids franchise or were you a big Renee Zellweger fan with the Bridget Jones? I mean, that's a good rom-com. I did see those. I think I saw the first couple of Spy Kids, uh, not in theaters. I think I may have seen it on DVD just as a rental, as one of those things where it's like, there's nothing else really on. Let me go check this out. And I liked them. I thought they were... They were fun and entertaining. It, interesting how we get news, you know, that they're rebooting, remaking, or sequeling that franchise just recently. The news that came out about that, and so uh, it's pretty relevant to to hear and see that is kind of on this list, and to know that news is here in 2022. Yeah, like 21 years later. Totally. I mean, Robert Rodriguez did those, right? He did. Mm -hmm. It's weird. I'm a huge Robert Rodriguez fan, but once he started doing those, I just dropped the ball and didn't follow them. They just didn't appeal to me. The marketing was wrong. Yeah, but... we'll get into it. I actually have another tidbit story. Just we're talking about stories of these. Like, I've used to buy Spy Kids tickets to go see the R-rated movies at this time to sneak into them. Because I think we were in like eighth grade or something like that. It was just like not quite in high school yet. Uh, so when we go get dropped off at the movie theaters, you know, us and the group of dudes or whoever we're meeting there, we'd go and buy tickets for this, you know, whatever movies they just in time. That's PG, or PG. And like Spy Kids is in theaters for the longest time. I remember I had like a bunch of Spy Kids, like stub tickets, never saw the movie. But as we'll go into some of this, I did get to see some of these other movies on this list, though. But Spy Kids got a lot of my money, though. I can say that. Totally. Was Freddie Got Fingered one of those you snuck into? Yes, 100%. Yeah. You know me. Tom Green, for me at that time, like, this was before Jackass. Tom Green was just the next Jim Carrey in the line of comedians I was into, or line of the comedic actors. So when he had his movie, it was like the South Park movie for me. I have to see that, right? I have to sneak into that one, too. So... Yeah, that was like a Friday night, you know, get dropped off uh, at the mall, go tell your mom you're seeing something else and go see Freddie Got Fingered. 
Absolutely, man. Freddy Got Fingered was a classic of that period in our lives. Oh, yeah. um, and it's become rightfully so a cult classic. Matt Stroll talks about it at length in his uh, book about why, you know, bad movies are good. He, he talks about like how it's nearly surrealistic. It's like the new avant-garde in which it's it's alienating the audience on purpose in almost a Dadaist way. And I love his argument. Um, but you don't have to intellectualize it. It's hilarious. Tom Green was hilarious, man. Oh, yeah. MTV Tom Green, the bum song. <laughs> he was dating for that. Drew Barrymore too. So they had the whole actual paparazzi thing, like the metaverse going. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, Mikey, were you a Tom Green aficionado or did was he like uh, repulsive to you? <laughs> he, he was, it's, it's hard to put a, a gauge on him because he he had some things that were funny but he he almost would just keep going and going and the law of diminishing returns kind of was with him and me as far as like his comedy goes and so this was a film that i never really got into and so i, I never checked it out but that was prime tom green season in 2001 for sure yeah and i can understand that i mean he's definitely a one trick pony, but man, if you like that trick, you can't get enough of it. So we we, we were all about Freddy Got Fingered. We were also all about another movie on here. Literally, this movie played more than anything at Jordan's house for years. I'm hoping you know which one it is. Which one is it, Jordan? I'll just say Joe Dirt. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. There's a few on here, but yeah, Joe Dirt was. Oh man, I've ever seen that one in theaters too. That was one, that was one of those like oh man, that was like on the level of like um like Waterboy fun in the theaters. Right. And I remember it was really unexpected because I wasn't that big a fan of like David Spade at that time. I always liked like Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. I like Chris Farley. I didn't really like David Spade that much. And that and like Joe Dirt changed it. Like that's the one that really made me like a David Spade fan. Yeah, I think that's David Spade's masterpiece. <laughs> that's hilarious to say. Like Joe Dirt is a masterpiece. Of course, it's the silly juvenile oh, film. Sorry, sorry. But it's got the Kid Rock, Kid Rock playing like essentially Kid Rock in it. Like he gets to be obsessed with Kid Rock was cool. Like and Carson uh, Daly, right? Carson Daly, like, yeah, it's, it's again, like you said, it's very much of its time. Like we mentioned, Tom Green's very much of that MTV era. I might even be an MTV production. It might be. I've got to look into that. I think yeah. it might be one of those ones with the Moon Man in the beginning. I think it is, and it's such a sweet-hearted film at its core. Like it really is. It's such it's a rock and roll film. movie too. In the in the in, in a weird way, in the vein of like um, Detroit Rock City and like Airheads. If, if those are like '90s staples that time, another Adam Sandler one in there too. If you're fans of those, it's it's like it has that kind of like southern rock tradition to it too love it yeah it's like a mixture in my mind oddly enough between detroit rock city and happy gilmore and that's right, there you go. high yeah. praise right yeah. for us how about you mikey any of these films uh on this list are, are they standing out to you that like you have a, like a super strong memory or experience or connection to i'll tell you one it's actually kind of way down there at 15 for that weekend it was enemy at the gates oh that's a good one i love that film uh it's one that i i really should go back and re-watch again because i haven't seen it in a while just jude law uh that that was mm. one of those films that he just kind of really stood out to me if you don't remember the film it's basically uh at the battle of stalingrad you had a russian and a german sniper kind of going back and forth uh trying to outduel the other one really well done film uh, and, and that was one that uh, I remember multiple times uh, getting together with some friends uh, and watching it in the dorm room. That that definitely is one that stands out to me. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Love it. I went with my parents to that one. That's such a my parents film. And yeah. <laughs> we loved it. We, we had a we had a blast. 
Especially uh, that one inspired so many games of 007 where you can only play with sniper rifles with the four players. Because <laughs> we watched that movie and we'd be like, hey man, you want to come over and do like enemy at the gates with the sniper rifles? And we get super competitive with it. But that's one thing I always remember about that. It was like, it was that next level of, you know, watching the movie and going to play. Like, we were way too old to be doing that. Yeah, that's so awesome. Such a good tie-in for that period too, to set that scene, that historical moment when GoldenEye was the game you were playing and these were the movies you were watching. We might have been a little tardy there. We played GoldenEye way past. It's like, I mean, I'm still playing it today. <laughs> so it's it's basically like uh, an all-time game for me. But uh, in terms of me, I want also want to go deep down before we go probably back up. But there's two movies, Traffic and Amados Peros, and those were staples of my childhood. Those were my two like first really big adult films. I mean, Traffic, Steven Soderbergh, I remember seeing that on a weekend afternoon and it was a very tense discussion on the way home just you know about all the dynamics of that film all the political undertones and subtexts and you know it was the height of this period where the interconnected motif was everywhere right that kind of like i think crashed with the movie crash right it hit its summit and crash <laughs> it's so true though that's a good with, point yeah that's the movie that like became both its pinnacle and its and its rock bottom right because it's got the best picture award and it got the highest praise for a, a transient period of time and then everyone turned on it mm-hmm. and definitely shows that you know those films where you have multiple storylines that coalesce together in some very serendipitous way or it's this very like peripheral way right it's this side plot moment where two characters run into each other and it's almost moot to like the grand scheme of the plot but just adds a little poignancy right that's more like Babel, where Babel isn't like this grand synthesis of all the plots but it's just like oh these worlds are coexisting but but i love those and amaros peros you know classic in too who's one of the top like 10 directors in my book so what were you going to say jordan about I really forgot about Babel actually so i was like in my head kind of ranking them because i always put traffic at the top and i think 21 grams i'm watching these years but i used to like you said these were ones i uh, used to really enjoy watching like those are like the ones i'd watch in in unison and i forgot about Babel. <laughs> that's that's what i'm have to come back to so i'm, I'm reassessing my list in my head but actually to hop back to our uh list there's so many on here so i want to like pull away this is actually a really good year this is another year of i'm not like b movies but like big budget movies that were like like just popcorn flicks, popcorn mm-hmm. flicks for certain demographics. And one on here that like hit super hard. We can get to a bunch of other ones that I know we like as like just film buffs. Um, I'm going to hold off on those. But number 14 this week <laughs> is Josie and the Pussycats. Um, <laughs> I fucking love this movie. This is one of the few times I get to talk about like a cartoon that they turned into a movie that I was like down as fuck to see. Uh, because again, like you have Rachel Lee Cook. Who is like America's like sweetheart? She's like the alternative heartthrob if you're into like emo and punk and all that shit. And then they had like the songs are actually good songs. Like they're a good like pop punk song. So I remember this is another one of those fun experiences when we went to go see it at theaters. Remember, I remember going to see it and kind of thinking we'd be like, you know, just there like it would be a regular night, but it's all like the teenagers, all the kids are like blinking no effects and all that stuff kind of showed up. And it was just like a fun time. They're like kind of like rocking out and having fun with the songs. And I remember it being like really poignant too. I was really surprised. I liked the plot. I liked the music. It's one of those ones that's actually aged pretty well since like over the years. Uh, but yeah, I just want to point that one out. Uh, Josie and the Pussycats. If you haven't seen it, get on it. Great pick. Great pick. And Mikey, you cracked up. What are your thoughts on this one? Well, I remember being a kid of the 80s and 90s watching like Cartoon Network when Cartoon Network was first starting. You know, they would 
re-show all those Hanna-Barbera cartoons, including Josie and the Pussycats. So I remember when they were going to turn that into a feature film. And it's just funny because it's just like I remember watching the cartoons and seeing, you know, it turn into a movie and especially of that time period because it's like you know a lot of that 70s 60s was kind of getting mined into feature films like the Brady Bunch got remade and and all these other kind of properties of that time period were kind of getting that remake reboot treatment kind of like today where we get the 80s and 90s films getting that reboot treatment Josie and the Pussycats was that example of the 70s and 60s uh, getting that reboot at that time. Like you said, those Hanna-Barbera cartoons, this was one of my favorite ones. Uh, Like I said, it was one of those rare rare moments for me because I'm usually critical of the, I guess, TV to movies. Like Speed Racer, I didn't really go see that one when it actually came out. When we did it for the podcast, I really liked it. Uh, But this one was like the reverse one. It's one of those rare ones for me. And with Hanna-Barbera, right? We had the Flintstones movie right around that time too. That was a huge hit. Uh, when it was in theaters. I also remember that song from Josie and the Pussycats, Three Small Words, right? was a nonstop on our, whatever, our burn CD mixtapes and so forth. And I remember my brother bought Josie and the Pussycats on DVD and that that movie never left the DVD player for like a year. And it's funny because it is, a mediocre movie i mean it's oh, yeah. it's highly enjoyable but so mediocre but we just wore that dvd out because it had a bunch of hot leads and uh good songs good femme pop punk so we, we were into it good choice i mean also right above josie and the pussycats we have memento we, oh, yeah. we got to talk about memento i know jordan you digged in i'll just say this we were at a show a say anything show i believe like I don't know, 10 years ago or something, we we're both having a drink and you were telling me like you had a paper that you wrote on this, or you had this like theory about this and you had a ton to say. It's been a while. I don't want to put you too yeah. much on the spot. It's been a bit. Yeah, I've written a few papers. This is one of those go-to things like Big Lebowski, like Nolan films. I just tend to like used to write a lot about it. It worked for like a prompt in a grad school and an undergrad. But yeah, I had one where it was just, like you said, really much about the dissection of like trying to line up the endings and really line up with the black and white, by basically lining up the timelines and how you can separate them from what means what, which dead body is which dead body, whether or not the ending is him going off or is it him beginning, right? And I forget, I haven't read it written in years. I haven't watched the movie in years, so I actually forget it because I remember was, uh, the funny thing about the paper, like we were talking about, I was like, there's actually an old paper and I rewatched it and there's like three things I'd written that I thought were just need to be revised to go back again. But that's what fun of the movie though. I think that's what makes Memento so good is when you really break it down, it's more than just, you know, does it add up? It's again, like the elusiveness of memory, the fragmentation of memory. Like it's just such a really good theme, especially as you get older and try to remember stuff and as things like, you know, slip for you it has like new meaning. But yeah, it's one of those ones I've written all sorts of different stuff about more from the narrative plot points as away from the like film aesthetics. Mm-hmm. I think I've written more about that stuff about with Batman, all that stuff with Nolan. Um, but yeah, that one was always just a really fun because again, it's like it has that great noir aspect. Um, it has just like you talking about whether or not it's one of those coinciding storylines, right? Because that's the other aspect you write about. There's so many characters who come in and sometimes break those theories, right? Where you see Carrie Ann Moss, where you see certain characters like that. So now when I think about Memento, I think about that meme uh, with Charlie from It's Always Philadelphia when he has the board up and has all the lines of, uh, you know, I forgot which from the episode, he's trying to figure out which character exists in the office. It's a pretty popular meme. That's what I think about with Memento. That's where my mind goes when I start talking about it. So I'm going to stop there. <laughs> always coming it back to like a perfectly relevant sitcom reference too, to Philadelphia, <laughs> Always Sunny Philadelphia. So perfect, perfect roundabout. Um, Mikey, did you ever watch Memento Backwards on the DVD? 
I didn't. I'm actually going to give a hot take here. I actually don't like Memento. It's one of my least favorite Nolan films. And I think part of it is because I didn't watch it until years later. I I watched several of his other ones before I saw that one. And so maybe if I saw that one first, I might like it more. But after seeing ones like Insomnia and obviously the, the Dark Knight trilogy and the Prestige, going back and then watching Memento, it just it just didn't hit right for me. But I it's definitely one of his best like cinematography films, just the way it's shot. And I appreciate it in that aspect. But just the story and everything, it just it never hit right for me. I think the thing is it got so copied ad infinitum after it came out in different ways with the like reverse narratives or starting movies off with like the ending again and again that it probably lost its luster a bit over the years. But man, when Memento came out, it was so groundbreaking. It was like Reservoir Dogs. So I can see like if you're a Tarantino fan going back to Reservoir Dogs and thinking it's underwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. But like if you were in 1994 at the time, you know, went to that screening of Reservoir Dogs, not expecting or knowing what to expect from a Tarantino film, right? It'd probably blow your mind. So that's the weird thing, right? About movies and time. And also, like like you said, we just mentioned the... um... We mentioned traffic and how that is a, of a specific time. And so is this one, right? Because like two years before this is like Fight Club, which is very similar, True. right? And and this movie is you know really playing with Fight Club being palpable and palatable really for for mainstream audiences. Like you know what I mean like there there's a pretty quick growing subculture of Fight Club, um, particularly in the music scene and stuff like that. So like I feel like that's that's the other thing. Like I so said, that one and like even Equilibrium, if I remember right, it's kind of out in that one. Matrix weirdly falls in this category with the idea of you know you know the mind being a much more greater landscape of a plot and a plot device so there's a there's there's little sprinkles too of like what that setting was like and why it was kind of like right for the taking so i, I completely see like i said it's like if you if you missed it like you it wouldn't really resonate too because i felt like that's a perfect example i remember always i watched reservoir dog was one of the later tarantino movies i watched and i liked it but it never hit like kill bill it didn't hit like pulp fiction right so that's, that's a great example paul yeah, so I totally understand, Mike, where you're coming from on that. It's not even that hot of a take to me. I think that it's cool, though, to think about what it might be like at its time, too, to preserve why it is such a cult classic and at the same time can be underwhelming for some and deserving of you know the fandom it gets. Another one I want to throw onto your list there, Jordan, is this film called Peppermint Candy, which you should add to your watch list if you okay. haven't seen it. It's a Korean film by Lee Chong Dong, and it came out in 1999, and it's very much of that. It like starts at the end and works backward, and it's like a tour de force. It's really really good and visceral and will hit you hard. It's right in those fight club memento circles. So we didn't exhaust this list. This list goes on and on, but I don't want to exhaust this list too much. I'm sure we'll do future 2001 films. And I think we we tackled a good mixture to give us an overview of what was in theaters at the time. So without further ado, let's get into the film of the of the night. Let's get into Driven, our 2001 Brandy Harlan, Sly Stallone. I, I would say collaboration because Harlan's behind the camera, Stallone penned it. And they'd worked before with Cliffhanger and so forth. So this isn't a first time collab between the two. But before we get into it too far, I want to let our audience know that this is not 2018's Driven, which I guess people could maybe loosely say was a sports film, even though there's nothing sports about it. That's about the creator, the CEO, the inventor of the DeLorean car. And that's with Zudakis, Jason Zudakis. It's really good. I actually saw it in theaters pretty much by myself a few years back, pre-COVID when it came out. and kind of reminded me of like 
a newer blow, which is funny because that was the one that it's we just bypassed. Yeah. That I just <laughs> so the Seriously, last one. Look at this list. It's hard not to pull like some of these movies. Like there's so many here I had to like pull back on. Yeah, that was the one I want to talk about too. And I jumped the boat, but now I'm coming back. I'm circling back because Blow <laughs> is a total classic for me. I think it's one of my favorite Johnny Depp films. I don't know. It's just like such a good knockoff kind of Scorsese, uh Goodfellow Scarface type film, you know, and just oozing with style. I played it again and again. I had the DVD, bought it from like the recycle bin or <laughs> the rental bin at Hollywood video and wore that thing out as well. So anyways, the 2018 driven, if you like blow, check it out. Uh, it's not a sports movie. It's not what we're doing. We're doing the 2001 driven that has a whopping like 30% critics and audience scores. We'll get into that later, the exact numbers, but it's definitely not loved by the general public. Um, and I'm I'm curious to see our thoughts on this, especially coming into it after having seen from Jordan and I, at least like Speed Racer recently has some humor, like the replacements. It's got some frenetic, chaotic filmmaking, like any given Sunday recently. Um, so there's so much to talk about. Um, but I want to start with our guest first to ask you, Mikey, what was your experience like the first time you watched it and how did it change this past week when you returned to it? Like I said, I was super hyped to watch the film and go to the theater and see it. And when I was there, I was blown away because at that point, there wasn't really a whole lot of racing films out, especially like open wheel racing. There wasn't really a lot of that. And so uh, to be able to see, you know, up to 200 miles an hour cars go speeding by is pretty cool to see on a big screen. Revisiting it recently, there are a lot of flaws to this film, and we'll get into a lot of the flaws in this film, but there's still an enjoyment factor to me of being able to watch it, but at the same time, understand it's not a complete film. It's not a film that is one that you could say is without its flaws, without problems with it, things that could have been addressed, things that could have been fixed. For me, I, I still enjoyed watching it even after 20-something years later. But like I said, we'll get into more of the problems uh, with the film. Sounds good. Jordan, what's your, I guess, initial take of this film? I know I texted and kind of ruined Poison the Well. I hate <laughs> when I do that. I get too overexcited. Um, no, it was a fair take Um like you said, like, I think your text was like any given Sunday, right. Was, was a big influence. I get that right right away with the uh, frenetic camera. And anytime there's a click of a camera, there's a cut of the scene, right. They mimic that to like a T they don't, they don't move from that. So I I thought that was, that was an apt comparison, but then like, I was trying to think the other thing that reminded me right away was Talladega Nights. Like it's, it's a weird one, but like, I'm not a big racing fan. I missed this movie. And so now I understand Talladega Nights a little bit better actually (laughs) after by watching this. So that, that's kind of like a weird connection for me to get to it, right? But like, again, I didn't see it in theaters. And so it's like, I like what you said, Mikey, it's by no means a complete film. But it, in terms of like as a sports movie, it has all the elements, like you mentioned any given Sunday. It has the elements of a returning has-been, if you will, has-been athlete or a washed-up athlete, retired athlete, player coach thing going on again, right? Coming back to teach the next generation, some knowledge, right? That, that passing of the torch thing going on, quintessential to all sports, like even any given Sunday with Cap and Jamie Foxx's character. That's a, that's another line in there. Um, but I'd say it's like all of that, but just kind of like shot out of a cannon at you. And it doesn't really, it's <laughs> really as well orchestrated as like an Oliver Stone movie. It doesn't have a great soundtrack like The Replacements. It does rely on a type of music like The Replacements. Like Replacements is calling attention to like, we don't want to spend money on actual songs, but we want you to know what songs we're trying to cover, right? Which is cool. It works for that one. Um, This one kind of does that with a little bit more adjacent like 
Limp Biscuit, New Metalish, like kind of Fear Factory stuff, I guess, in there kind of going on. This is like the pre-Slipknot era, right? The pre-like heavier stuff and getting more mainstream. So that's kind of like in the background. The music, it's very much a 2001 movie though, right? It has all that MTV kind of culture in it too. At the, at the core of this movie, it's, it's the real world, right? It's literally the real world. It's what everyone should tune, tune in to watch when you, people stop watching music videos. They just, just want to watch drama. They want to watch people who live together or near each other in adjacent professions. And they're going to cheat and fuck each other and other partners and stuff. That's all this movie is. It's like the leftover resonance of that. That's never like really picked up and resolved. Just kind of poked at throughout the movie. And it's kind of fun. Like it's one of those movies that like, I think you could watch to make fun of. We've been going down B movies and you can do it in that vein, even though this isn't a B movie. Like you mentioned, it's like a $90 million budget. It's one of those great movies of 2001 where CGI just, well, for me, the first half had some really cool looking explosions and crashes. And then there's this weird shift where the CGI just sucks. And then mm-hmm. that stopped and that kind of sucked. I was really on board. I was like, at least these crashes are cool. Cause I was really feeling like the first half, there's a good uh, ability of like mentioned of creating like the viscoralness of impact, just like any given Sunday, but these are with cars. And there, there's some really cool, like tight cuts, just, you know, the camera just really gets, get the tension going, but it kind of stops when we see where the money went, the money went and is just really outdated, even for the time. CGI, when you go on that list, if you look at that 2001 list, like you'll see other ones that kind of stand up still with CGI. So this is one of those ones that just didn't, unfortunately, work to the full degree. But like I said, because it's kind of just a, like a, this motley crew of like sports tropes and drama, there's a lot for a lot of people to pull on. Um, so I was a little surprised at the low rating on kind of, well, I figured critics would rip this one apart. But I thought this would kind of crawl under like we see on some of these other ones like Invincible or some of those other ones where like the audience would just like tie on to the tug and pull of the main characters. Yeah, I mean, there is a ton to unpack there, but you said a lot of great stuff. The CGI definitely takes a dive about the halfway. It comes really cartoonish. That scene where the tire flies off, right? You're probably thinking of, and it mm-hmm. the camera follows it in the air until it falls into the crowd. I personally, oddly enough, had fun of it. I was giving it like the benefit of the doubt of being a 2001 film and thinking that they were like coming on the heels of the Matrix and just trying to push, you know, the trippy computer animated type tech that was pretty new ish still. It wasn't brand new, but definitely it becomes way more unrealistic as the film goes. Cause at the beginning, it's like, oh, are these stunts? Like, this is yeah. pretty awesome. And then by the end, you're like, oh, this is definitely CGI. Like, there's one car that flips over. Oh, it's the, the main crash, which we'll get into, right? That, mm-hmm. that turns into this huge dramatic scene. It's pretty green screened and absurd looking. So that definitely takes a sour turn. But it's still fun. It's still like over the top and going for it. But man, the kinetic filmmaking, there is so many cuts in the racing. And I was on board. There's Aaron so White many cuts yeah. from them just walking to the first race. Like, think about the intro of the thing. Like by the time he gets to the car, how many people has he run into? Like I said, for each of those clicks of this camera, it's like it's it's him hitting someone new, someone touching him, someone kissing him. It's a very like uh, immediate res. We get thrown into a book just like right into the middle of it. And it doesn't really stop until till Sly shows up. Good point. And I was just thinking too, like our main character, like there's a lot of characters in this that are, are kind of important, right? But our main character, Bly, the, the young rookie, and he's played by Kit Pardue, right? And I, I recognize him immediately from Rules of Attraction. He has this great sequence in Rules of Attraction that is similarly frenetic and crazy. It's like this seven minute montage of like all of his character shenanigans in Europe. It's like one of the greatest scenes in that era of film. Yeah. I kind of liked him here too, because he's such a product of the late nineties, early aughts, and then disappeared. So he's like this actor who's preserved and embalmed in this time period. But what's his main problem? You know, he has his antagonism with his brother. 
his mind is in 10 places at once. And like the camera is definitely recreating that. Like you feel scattered, you feel unmoored. Roger Ebert said that this film was the embodiment of attention deficit disorder. Oh, yes. I I think the big example of that and what really stood out to me watching it back again was the scene in the RV trailer with him and his brother and the constant cutting between him back and forth, back and forth. Every time they were doing a close up scene, it got to a point where it was just driving me nuts to just see that back and forth, just wanting them to just be focused on having maybe even both of them in the scene at one point and then maybe cut back and forth. But I couldn't remember if that was just the way it was in 2001 of how they were cutting it or it was just this film. Uh, but Jordan, you were talking about how that was kind of of that time. So to hearing that now, it like makes sense to hear, oh yeah, that was how they did that back then. But like looking at it now, I don't know how anybody can sit there and just watch that and just think, oh, that's, that's the perfect way to shoot that scene. I, I'm a, I'm a heathen there. Cause I thought it was awesome. <laughs> oh, really? I'm yeah, with Mikey I, on that one. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Because like I, I agree with Mike, I felt like it's very much like like any given Sunday, like trying to forecast that, like even the lighting, you know, trying to forecast the air, but it was too much, right? Because any given Sunday, when we broke it down on this podcast, we mentioned like Oliver Stone throws some weird shit at you in those cuts. You know, it's either to fuck with you or it's it is a type of motif to the character that's either preceded it or followed it, right? We kind of discussed that. It is artsy. It's him, you know, it's him getting his his notes, if you will, into, into the text, which I appreciate. This isn't doing that though, right? It's very much trying to like mimic the style. It's kind of mimicking the wrong thing that made Any Given Sunday such a good movie, which I found interesting, right? It, it found like the one thing that Any Given Sunday did, right? It's like, we can do it. And they just kept redoing it. And it never stops. Any Given Sunday gives you time to breathe. And like you mentioned, like, characters exist like you know it goes from that frenetic to something like scorsese and like goodfellas where it stops and you have a room of people and right and the tension builds and then you get back to you know it's preserved more for the field right and this is it goes from the backstage to the race track to after the race track it's like i said it's really not till you get to like salone and his cool little like almost like in cliffhanger he's out in the fucking woods minding his own business then he gets the call like you gotta come back to work man so there's that that connection again just for those uh salone buffs there yeah, so I agree to Mikey that a conventional analysis of this right would say that they way overcut it, right? It's lopsided, it's chaotic, it's imbalanced. I guess for me, I got on board with that high octane energy and I was just like, don't let me breathe. Do not let me breathe. And what I love so much about this movie is we've watched a lot of sports movies that feel like slow builds, right? They're kind of like slow burn crescendos to an end event that kind of pays off, but like it feels a little underwhelming. There's not a ton of sports. Like this movie starts with a race. You get soapy melodrama, like Jordan said, real world-esque stuff. I saw some people refer to Aaron Spelding era stuff, right? That sort of- 90210-ish. 90210 vibe, and it's spot on, right? I remember- when we did the Mystery Alaska episode, that's what they're also comparing that film to, right? So you have that juxtaposition, right? And But basically what you get here is an oscillation between racing at 250 miles an hour and then juicy melodrama and racing at 250 miles an hour, juicy melodrama. And what I love so much too is the melodramas are like filled with corny ass dissolves and montages and that frenetic soundtrack, that wall-to-wall, the replacements-esque uh, but but more new metal than pop punk, you know, instead of like lit, we're getting, like you said, Fear Factory and PODS style stuff. And I just got on board. I was like, yeah, just go for it. Be gung ho, be, be singular. And, uh, you know, in that sense, it resembled for me, Speed Racer. Not only are they basically the same 
topic, right? They're the same sport in very different universes, but they have the same pacing and that pacing is relentless. I, I think that's why for many people, it was too much. But when I said it's the epitome of ADHD, right? And I quoted Roger Ebert, I was shocked because I went deeper and read his full review and he actually enjoyed it. He actually like has one of his best reviews of all time, in my opinion, because usually he's more opinion than like aesthetic or sensory focused. Like he's, he's more like thumbs up, thumbs down instead of just getting into the meat of the material. And man, does he get into it? So I just wanted to pull a quote out from him and he's describing the, the racings. And he says, most of the crashes are done with special effects, but he says a car in the air will jerk into split screen freeze frames on pieces of sheet metal that will fly at us more slowly than a real life. But we get our money's worth. The races consist of quick cutting between long shots of racing, close-ups of narrowed eyes, close-ups of feet pushing the metal, point of view shots of the track, close-ups of the crash, sometimes in a blur or haze, and constantly changing perspectives. And so like, it kind of resembles, in my opinion, like that paragraph, that the flow of this sport, the sport is unreal, the speed. And so like, I love it when the filmmaking mirrors that. But yeah, it's a mess. And before I run on too much, I want to get into some of the flaws that are very conspicuous that we already talked about. And Mikey, you you mentioned one already, but I know you have a few on your mind because you definitely foreshadowed them hard. So what are some of the other flaws that really stood out to you this time? There were a couple. One is the filmmakers. They had nothing to do with this. It was just a product of the time. They didn't have the Indy 500, which is the granddaddy of IndyCar racing. Because if you remember back in 2001, the series were split. You had Indy and you had Kart. And Driven was focusing on the Kart series. So it had some really cool uh, venues, as we see. We see Toronto, we see Germany, we see Japan, we see Australia. It had some good tracks, but it didn't have Indy. And back then, you know, even today, Indy is the pinnacle of races along with Daytona mm-hmm. and Monaco for F1. So not having that, I think looking back kind of hurts it. Another thing, and to me, it's really the main problem of the film is there's not a lot of depth to the characters. There's a great cast. I love the cast, you know, Sly Stallone. We mentioned Kit Pardue, Estella Warren, who was very big during that early 2000s. Robert Sean Leonard, who would later go on to be in House, plays uh, Jimmy Bly's brother, his agent. You know, Burt Reynolds, you know, the, the cast is really good. The problem is, is that there's not a lot of depth to them. You don't really get to know them very well. And for an ensemble cast, you know, it's great to have the cast if you're going to have it there, but to not be able to really go very far in depth with them to understand, you know, where Jimmy comes from as this prodigy, this, this hotshot rookie. Uh, we don't know his backstory other than his brother is with him through this rise. And, you know, he has these troubles of being focused. Uh, you have the, uh, his rival, the champ, the reigning champ who has problems with his girlfriend dumps her. But other than that, it's like, you don't really know much about him. You have the former teammate who gets bumped by Joe Tanto, who's played by Sly Stallone, uh, who then gets put back in later. There's really not a whole lot of understanding of where these characters are, where they're coming from. And it kind of goes into just not having as tight of a screenplay as you would want, which is funny because Sly himself said, that he did 25 rewrites of the script 
before we got the one that we have. So even though, you know, it's 25 rewrites, it still feels like there could have been a lot more done to tighten up the script, maybe focus on one or two characters more. Uh, but really for me, I think that's kind of the main problem with this film is that the, the screenplay wasn't focused enough to really get at the heart of the story. That's an excellent breakdown. Uh, right away, my first example of that is Gina Gershon's character, Kathy. Cause like, like, like I love Gina Gershon. Yeah. She's from fucking face off childhood crush. I'm like, Oh, Gina Gershon's in this, but her role is like, again, she just, she's, she exists to antagonize and that's it. It's, it's like you said, like we're introduced to her as his ex-wife who left him for the younger, newer racer. Right. And she even says like, when he, when he does meet her and they have like their two second introduction, like, why'd you leave him? Do you love him? Kind of things like, cause he's a better, younger version of you. Right. It's these really cheesy dialogue. She doesn't even get it delivered Well, unfortunately, I, I like Gina Gershon. But this is not her. This is not a high point for her uh, in terms of her roles. Unfortunately, I, like you said, I was like, something's missing, right? There's no exigence in this at all. There's no exigence for like their animosity, right? And then for us to feel sorry for her when she's sitting with her husband after the dramatic crash and stuff, or her new her new man or whatever it is. Estella Warren's character with Sophia and Jimmy having like this weird, you know, he picks her up after she breaks up with Brandenburg, who I always remember from SLC Punk as the dude who has like the waterbed. He's really stoked to have the waterbed. He's showing the punk rockers his cool waterbed laser disc. <laughs> but anyways, getting back to like all these, the connections, like I said, like when one person dumps another and they get picked up by the next, there's no real exploration of that relationship. So when they do, you know, swap partners and they break up and have that big fight because she wants him back, it's it's really like a what the fuck moment. We're like, okay, well, you, you know, you've been together, it seems like for a day or whatever. Like she was your date to this place. I don't get what the big beef is. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't always land. There's like, so like, you can go down the list. There's a lot of things you think are going to go somewhere they don't. Like Stacey Edwards, who's like our uh, reporter. Um, I don't even remember the reporter's name, but she's in a room learning stuff, but she never does anything with it, right? So I was like, I felt like, I was like, what was the point of that character? Um, we can go down, there's, there's a lot of them and you make a valid point, Mike. I felt like that too. I'm like, there's so much like, I'm supposed to feel like I'm being urged towards something, but I don't know what with this, right? When I'm getting a new character. And I feel like it's one, it is, it's a fatal flaw of this movie. Yeah, and really, it, all you have to do is look to today. If you are a fan of Drive to Survive on Netflix, you know exactly what I'm going to say here is a prime example of what this film could have been. We see all the time uh, in F1 today with Red Bull and Mercedes how they go about their business. They have their A driver with Red Bull, it's Max Verstappen, and for Mercedes, it's Lewis Hamilton. And they have their B driver, which is George Russell and Sergio Perez. And the main driver is the championship guy. They're the ones that the, the sponsors are wanting to win the title. And their second driver is the ones that's supposed to support and make sure that their partner is the one getting the title. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfect example of what this film could have been if they had focused on the relationship between Joe and Jimmy and seeing that how Joe is there to support Jimmy and to make sure that he's the one that's going to go for that title. If they had focused on that, you could have still had the secondary stuff with the rivalry with Brandenburg, even the relationship with Gina Gerson's character, because you could have still had her new husband being bumped out of that ride because he mm -hmm. wouldn't be the one uh, to support Jimmy and be that secondary guy. Uh, you could have still had that story there, but it just goes back to there's a story that can be told with this film. It just feels like it just wasn't completed. That's really fair. And I completely agree in one half of my mind. And I'm going to 
give some context to it to show that maybe that's what they wanted because there's a deleted scenes with Sylvester Stallone commentary track on the DVD of this. I've not seen it, but I guess it's 51 minutes and I guess it's almost entirely Stallone parts and interpersonal parts. And Stallone really wanted it to be uh, from what I've read, this like two and a half hour epic about relationships that somehow got whittled down into like, you know, a high adrenalized vomit core action film, right? Like just like balls to the wall, nonstop thing. And so it's it's a really a film that feels sort of bipolar or schizophrenic. It feels like it could have gone two ways and you sense that throughout my problem. This is where I'm going to be a provocateur and I'm not just trying to be a Troy. I truly like felt this as I was watching it is I wanted it to like lean into its shitty soapiness and be even more surface. So the problem with me, right, is like Stallone has some great lines and there is some depth to these characters. I get what you're saying that like they lack depth, right? But there's enough that it's like almost a good film. And that's what's so frustrating. That's what's like eliciting these these critiques, right? Like we can see the possibility of this film, the potential of this film, because they brush the surface of, you know, these dynamic relationships, these histories that just don't get flushed out. For me, I was going a different direction in my viewing. I really wanted this to just be like Showgirls or Starship Troopers or Southland Tales or Crank. I just wanted this to be style and I wanted it to be totally bereft of substance. I wanted it to be as campy and over the top as possible. So I was like loving the edits before each race of like the bodies, the sensuality, the people eating churros and hot dogs. I was uh, like loving all the sensual dynamics of the film, the, the swimming scene that was totally gratuitous, the bitchy scene in the bathroom, right? Where they're putting on makeup and the reporter flips her off when she's supposedly fixing her mascara, right? I love the cattiness of it. And I'm so glad that both of you brought up Gershon because she would have been the epitome of what I want in this film. Her career as this side character, mm-hmm. as, you know, this pouty, sneering, catty woman. I love her. She's so underappreciated. I wanted to immediately halfway through this film, just stop and tweet out like an appreciation for her. Like she's like a Harry Dean Stan type actor to me, mm-hmm. right? Like she deserves her due and not enough credit is being given to her. So I'm so glad that you both recognize that. And yes, she is very two-dimensional in this and way like over histrionic right and strutting around and she's like pretty much the only dislikable character um but well the uh, brother too true like, he's, he's another one who's actually a good actor yeah. like i said i like his actor in delivery i like that you mentioned mikey from house i always remember him as house's best friend so like i, I like the detachment i was like oh man this book can act like but i like he played such a good like not necessarily coming from concern but like that brother like he's a dick right he's devious he is greedy and he is only looking for himself so like it, it's one of those ones where you know he's going to get his his just deserves, if you will, right? So when he does get punched by Estella's, uh, Warren's character, Sophia, right? Before the then she like basically says he hired him and you're fired, punches him, right? It's funny, but then it's like one of those things like it kind of goes with what we just said. Like Estella's character isn't really fleshed out in any degree because she's just this character that's always next to one of the racers. And like she's just used to like, you know, getting their heads, right? And so it's another moment where she's supposed to be like empowered, I guess, by the punch. But then she just goes and gets on the sideline with, you know, the dude she was basically using Bly to kind of like make jealous, right? Because that's an unspoken thing with that, too. Which is, again, it's kind of fun. Like I say, I like the, you know, the drama angles can be fun when you're tracing them back. But as you're playing through it, it doesn't really like unfold in an enthralling way where, like you said, like it doesn't go enough into the soap doesn't go dig enough into like 
that drama and the absurdity of like these, like I said, these relationships and why we should be mad. Like you don't get to see like Gina Gershon fuck someone up in this. She looks like she's always going to slap a bitch in these movies. Right. And she doesn't. And you want to see it in this because like, right. It's, it's supposed to be high tension. And like, that's all reserved for the racetrack in this, which is an unfortunate opportunity because we only get one kind of quintessential, you know, out of the field brawl. Right. If you will, which always happens in the sports movies, but it's a pretty weak one. Nothing really happens. Right. And it goes more to, differentiate them and separate them to new camps at that point. Right. And it's, it's a little too orderly. So like I said, I agree with you, Paul. There's like, I think you're hundred percent right. They should have delved more into the Fox, the party of five stuff and just really accentuate that more and, and, and dig into that. I, I agree with you there. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that a lot of even critics are on board too, because Andrew out here of salon was talking about Gershon. And he said that even as a mascara damaged trash back in a denim cat suit, Gershon is the best actor within miles of this movie. And uh, all the characters are too nice, Roger Ebert puts, except for Gershon, who sticks to bitchiness and a stubborn show of integrity. So everyone was on board, I guess, in in certain circles with this, this feeling that like, you know, if you're going to go there and flirt with the flamboyance and the hysterical, just the nastiness, go there do it but don't like straddle this line and this this was a little weird about this movie is that it's almost just so fun i feel but then it's just good enough ironically that it makes it bad (laughs) because like it could be a traditionally good sports movie right and so like someone brought up rush earlier already in this in this conversation and aaron uh filling film put in his review i'm just paraphrasing him that if Rush is a gourmet meal, which it really is, right? This is junk food, right? And he's like, and I'm okay with that. Like, I he liked it. But, you know, he he definitely called it out for like, just, you know, it's awkward, constant needle drops and, you know, all the other problems with it. But you know what I mean? As a as a fun, happy meal, it, it works too, right? But it's definitely the opposite, the polar opposite of a gourmet meal. And so I, I like to think of it as that. It has its place. But, you know, the worst thing McDonald's does ever is try to make a salad, right? Because it's disgusting. Just go anywhere else for a salad, right? And that's what I feel like the problem with this is that it didn't lean in to what it was. Like, no, don't make a salad for me. Give me another burger patty, right? (laughs) Give me, you know, extra fried fries. Give me, you know, deep fried Twinkies and so forth. That's my take. But there's some really fun scenes. One of the scenes I want to talk about, I want to bring in Mikey again, was the race through Chicago, right? That race through Chicago is definitely a standout moment. Did you have fun with that? What's your take on that scene? That's actually one, probably the first time I saw the film, I really enjoyed it. But looking back on it now, uh, and during the rewatch, I wasn't as big a fan of it because it just felt like it it, it kind of took me out of the moment almost because in reality, if you had two guys joyriding indie cars on the streets of Chicago, they wouldn't just walk away with a $25,000 fine. Like they would be arrested. They would be thrown in jail at the very least for the speeds at which they were going and the the recklessness that they were driving. But I get why the scene was there because obviously it's that trope of sports films where you need to have that come to Jesus moment for Jimmy there with Joe kind of explained to him. It's like, look, you have got to focus. Like you cannot let other people dictate to you how to be and how to drive and what it is that you're searching for and winning. Like you have to find that joy again. So once you get off the race and just get that moment between the two of them, that's one that really works. I mean, the driving sequence is really cool, but just like the aspect of it just kind of like stood out to me of like, this is ridiculous. Like this isn't, this couldn't happen in real life. And they just walk away with, you know, a slap on the wrist. 
So, so true, right? I mean, even the preposterous ambition of Stallone in the screenplay to contrast, right? This over the top race sequence through the city, right? Like, and it's great. It's like a Looney Tunes episode really quick, right? We have the manholes popping up. We have glass breaking on the bus stop. We get a quick shot of the newspaper stand before they drive by so we can anticipate the newspapers flying into the street, (laughs) right? We get the cop who's going to have his speedometer just hit max. It understands it's, it's silly and it's its comedic sort of detour. And the audacity to then lead that into this like one-to-one about like will and faith, the like big sports <laughs> moment. That's nuts. Like he went from pure camp to like a earnest Rocky moment, right? Like, yeah. like, like the heart of the movie. And you're like, what the hell? Like, what am I supposed to think here? And, and you're thinking like, how come the helicopters are flying around? But like no one behind them cares that these are the two guys who just got out of these Formula One cars after wrecking the city, right? <laughs> and, and no one's bugging them. No one's ogling at them, right? There's like a whole posse of, of extras in the back. I love that. The police <laughs> aren't showing up for minutes. It was insane, but it was a blast. But that shows in a nutshell, right? If I can re- synthesize like a new take maybe that is its singularity right its singularity is that some films go like full-on crank mode right and they're just like frenetic absurd batshit cinema and then some go like the more earnest route and this one is like the one film that's bold enough and brazen enough to try to do both constantly and it's like when you say it like that though it sounds like i actually wrote here it's like that was remind me like fast and the furious you know zoom 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 like the cool stuff driving underneath the trucks in line right some crashes to like let me drop some knowledge on you kid like vin diesel moment like it's all about your family, right? This time it's not family though. He's like, it's all about faith, right? So remember your faith. But like, I, I did, yeah, I did a double take. So I was like, where the where this faith narrative come from? Because before, like, we point out our discussion, it's been like focus. It's it's an interesting thing because it's profound, but it's also again working against, like, like you mentioned, working against a lot of the narratives and a lot of like what's actually pushing against our main character's conflict, which is in a nutshell like the problem with the screenplay, right? It's it's so disorganized. That like when you get those moments, like I said, it goes from the absurd to like the, you know, the poignant. And then even me, I'm like, wait, okay, we're here now. Right. And then it doesn't follow up on the poignancy though. Right. <laughs> because it goes into like what, what Mikey pointed out. It's all about fucking teamwork when you're in these races, it sounds like. Right. So it has more to do about working in team and trust than necessarily faith. Right. So that's one of those things where I was like, wait, went from faith to trust. And I was like, it's skipping the moments. Right. It's skipping teaching the triple D or the, the triple D. Right. And it just gets to the triple D. Completely agree. And like the sports tropes don't work at all because Stallone suddenly becomes like an ally, right? To the person he's hired to be an ally to, right? To have an allegiance to. Yet he goes behind his back and basically talks to his rival into going after his ex, which is bizarre, right? I, I didn't get that. Like, why, dude, are you, what are you trying to do? Sabotage? First day, first day of work just stirs the pot. Well, with that part, that actually makes sense because, you know, he had that relationship with Gina Gershon's character. Uh, and he lost it. And so, you know, you had that separation there. And so he sees that with Brandenburg and he's like, look, it happened to me. I don't want it to happen to you. You should learn from my mistakes. And so I, I thought that scene was actually one that made sense uh, and actually kind of gave some depth to the character more so than some of the other ones where it's just you don't really understand the context of where they're coming from and where they're going. But that was actually a scene where you could actually connect the dots of where he's coming from and where he's going to, because we really don't hear a whole lot of what happened prior to, you know, the start of this film. We, we hear bits and pieces of, yeah, he was in this wreck and it kind of, you know, messed him up really bad mentally. And, you know, that, (laughs) 
checked out. That's why this divorce happened. And, you know, this is why everyone was thinking he'll never get back in a race car again. But that's something that could have really been drawn into more. And it's actually good that that scene with him and Brandenburg actually kind of explains a little bit more of that, that you see, use me as an example of what not to do. But then again, like his ex sucks. Like she's great in the movie, but she's awful, right? She's she's a total witch, she no, right? She has no redeeming qualities until like you're like I said, you're supposed to feel bad for her sitting next to him. I'm like, dude, like from from the moment one, she's like chirping him, giving him shit. Like my 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 dude, dude, dude does be better than you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> And that, and that's one of the things where it really could have done a better job of explaining that whole thing of where yeah. how hurt she was. Yeah, it, it's shown that you know you abandoned me, and if they had been that thing of like saying yeah. you abandoned me, you left me, and yeah. you you know, you checked out, and what was I supposed to do? Sounded like Sloan cleaned himself up too. Is the other thing they kept emphasizing. It felt like um, if I, again, I thought they emphasized Sloan's in a good position now. And they try to make her seem bad, but then, like you said, Sloan is trying to teach this kid, like, go get her, man. I still want this one. And like Paul said, I'm like, why do you still want this one? She's still giving you shit right now. She doesn't want you. It seems like. Yeah, I mean, Mike, you're right on the points. You are all, I think, on the same level here. The thing that is weird, though, right, is that its incoherence sometimes feels more real to me. Right? It's just like <laughs> this truly messy one degree of separation love circle right <laughs> and like everyone's hooking up with everyone else and backstabbing everyone else but like why then right because i get your point mikey that like he has his own romantic misgivings and regrets right with his ex but then why is he also at the same time going behind the back of kip bardu who's obviously pretty smitten it's it's just odd to me that like that's his teammate right you don't do that to your teammate you don't you don't undermine their new like adoration even if like you have this other bro code like the bro codes are so bizarre in this movie that's all i mean like they're so weird and then he immediately goes chasing bly through the streets but like dude you're the one who caused this basically you stirred the pot you instigated this whole reunion so, so utterly strange the way it's set up. And then you have this whole backstory with Sly, you know, about fear, right? Like in the very, very beginning, when he's first called back, they have like a back and forth between him and Burt Reynolds, right? Like about like, have you gotten over the fear? So, you know, he had this, must have had this like crash or some, some gnarly thing. They don't, they don't give us a flashback, right? Yeah. So what I felt like after a while was like, this film literally is hearkening to like sports tropes and not filling in the blanks. Each time we get a new tidbit about Sylvester Stallone's backstory, it's like taken from another sports movie. So we just get this like amalgamation or pastiche of like 20 sports movies put into him, right? As the return veteran, right? As yeah. this like tragic, uh, you know, resurrection, re redemption story. And you don't know where to pinpoint him. You don't know what his career was like. You don't know really what he's doing here. Like he has moments where it's like, is he going to end up wanting to take the lead kind of in the vein, like Top Gun, right? To Maverick, like Tom Cruise. Like I thought he was going to be the winner at the last race or something. Uh -huh. But no, he actually is more selfless and mature, you know, knows his role. But I just could not read any of the character arcs in this movie. It's completely incoherent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the fun to me, though, is being so entangled in it. Like another movie might make it really work and make it linear and aligned and balanced symmetrical but then like you're done and you're just kind of like left with another good formulaic story which is fine but like what is a little intriguing to me about this one is like 
it's got so many jarring inconsistencies that I'm almost fixated with it. Like I want to unpack it and I can't. So <laughs> I don't know. For me at this point in my, I guess my movie watching career, that's really part of the fun as odd as that is. So Mikey, what did you love about this on even your rewatch? I still love the driving. I, I thought the driving sequences were some of the best especially the first half of the film. Uh, you know, we talked about the bad CGI, especially towards the end. But really, the driving sequences, I thought, were the best of the film because they really got in there and showed you the speed of which these indie cars, these open-wheel cars can get. And having ESPN be a part of the telecast and, and showing the, the broadcast of those and having the indie car guys or the cart uh, announcers be the ones that were announcing the races gave it that level of credibility and also having the cart racers, you know, you, you saw Philip Pauldi, you saw Andretti, you saw these guys that were part of that series have cameos in the film and see them out racing along with Bly and Brandenburg and Tonto. Uh, you, you saw them out there. And so having that be a part of it was something that was very enjoyable and, you know, still got to enjoy watching that. Great point. Great point. I mean, the car racing, I don't think I read a single review or take that picked that out as a problem. Like maybe the CGI, but no one that picked that. Like it rocks, right? Like the heavy breathing, the blurry lenses, the slow motion shots, uh, the 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 quarter sequence. Yeah. So good, right? I was, I was Jordan, to... I want you to probably talk about that because that is such a sports show we run into that that scene. Oh, yeah. Right? It was like we said, it was, it's a trick run. It's a new kid who shows up and he's got the skill. It's like when uh, Carlos or whatever his name is shows up in the big green, he can juggle, right? They're like, we can't do that yet. And this dude, this dude juggles with the coins, right? I love it. I like that this one always has the, the game in the rain, right? We always talk about with outdoor sports, if it's baseball, soccer, football, you know, if you play under the sky, you got to you have that scene where it's in the rain, right? It just adds something to it, adds a, a layer of, of uh, durability to the characters, um, that perseverance and also like just the commitment to like the culture and sport like they go out rain or shine uh so i did like that i like that just drop it. i was like oh it's really cool it's just like it's kind of funny i was like they, they got and then they even have to mention like the significance of driving in the rain i thought was kind of cool definitely i mean the knuckle puck would be another yeah. analogy to it right like the kid shows up the outcast by this point the pariah mm-hmm. and he's got you know like you said this trick up his sleeve and i love that they juxtapose it with the shots of bly you know talking to his coach or whatever the guy in the headset in utter disbelief and skepticism. And the guy's like, you don't want to make that bet when, when he tries to say like, that's impossible. I loved it. And the fact that they only see the two quarters at first and have to rotate the wheel, of course it's there, but, mm-hmm. but just like perfect timing, right? Like, like the good punch line to that visually. One of the better driving scene, like I said, a lot of the driving scene is really good, but one of the really better driving scenes is like early on, it kind of, like you said, puts you in the zone. Great heroic approach, a classic Sloan too, right? Sloan has to have the good entrance. It's, it's very much like something like get the solitude in the woods, right? Get that call to action, right? Because it, it follows that that traditional story too. It's not necessarily like a hero's journey anymore, but like the older mentor, you know, his call back to action. And like, right. And then you got to show the skills, like you said, and like with cliffhanger, it's the knowledge of the basically cliffhangers, literally him showing off the skills again, the whole movie, just, just messing up dudes skillfully pretty much. But this one, you like, you get a display of skills, like right off the bat. It's fun. Like it's, I always like the way they have kind of have everyone kind of slowly coming to watch too. Like the crowd kind of gets bigger, right. Which is also, you know, anyone in the park or who's watching someone play ball, like, you know, when it's good, like everyone kind of comes and congregates. So again, I like that, that, Again, that little element of like street ball kind of in there too is pretty cool. Yeah, I love that you talked about the solitary man in the woods, right? Because it's totally like cliffhanger, like you mentioned, right? Someone with 
a dark past, much darker in Cliffhanger. We actually get to see it, right? Oh. And like it really seeps into our bones, right? From that opening daring sequence in Cliffhanger that then we get a full circle, you know, character arc with that film that works. Whereas this one, you don't really know, right? It's all like I pointed out a few minutes ago, elusive, right? We don't really quite get a total grasp on his backstory yet. The, they like blast country music and they have this overhead shot of his house. It's like on a pond. Right. And that's all we need. He's just like rugged by himself gets called to action again. Right. It's the same as in a different way. I mean, Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick, right? Top Gun's still in the system. He's still pushing technology and definitely doing something, but you know, he gets called back to be a coach, right? Yeah. A player coach. And, you know, here we get one of the most unique players. Same coaches. thing. Like you're going to teach them. Then we're done with you. Right. It's the same thing. Like that's how like his dilemma. It's not as pronounced, but it's like, show the new kid then you're out of here except Burt, Burt Reynolds kind of does it like a like a southern Xavier in this one like Charles Xavier in this one because like in his wheelchair he's got like again the trauma traumatized past from his own whatever happened with racing it sounds like too which again like punctuates these like these archetypes there's all these archetypes around that are slightly punctuated here and there they just never really get to like go off yeah you know and you get the really corny triumphant line too where Burt Reynolds comes at the very end of the last race when Bly's won the circuit and he's like, you could have won that, couldn't you? And he's like, I did win it, right? And so it's like this graduation of the ego or, or something, right? He shows that he's truly accepted his role now as the wingman, right, as yeah. well. Like you think about it as a sports wingman, right? As the strategic sidekick to help the newbie, to help the rookie, you know, find his footing, um, which is a weird part of the sport too, because it's like, I don't know, it, it kind of deflates in some ways the like heroicism or like the idolatrous excitement or worship instinct I have towards like our star of the film. Cause it's as if like it's a soccer team or a basketball team and like the star player jukes out everyone and then just like passes it to the other person for like a freebie. Right. Like Nathan McKinnon. Like, that's Nathan McKinnon in the Stanley cup finals this year. You just <laughs> described him. Gotcha. Cross that blue line, pass it off to McCarr and score. Gotcha. So the other players took from McKinnon or McKinnon was the one who took. No, from McKinnon was the one who took it for them all the way there. He didn't get the goals. Okay. Right? He usually gets a goal. That was the thing. Everyone's like, he's not scoring, but if you watch him, he's the one getting you into the blue line because no one could touch him. Right. He skates you into the corner, sets up your passes. He got a bunch of assists. Right. I'm, I'm not saying he should have got caught in spite. I'm not saying that. I like McCarr getting it. But like you said, it, it's uh, it's more of the work being done than it, it's like worshiping the star, but there's really more going to it. Like McCarr yeah. got, got the concert because McKinn did the sacrifice work of really putting him in the position to get those goals. I completely agree. And my bet agreed as well. So uh, please, Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> I deserve that win. I definitely put a good little sum on McKinnon to get the concert. So I'm a little bitter still. Uh, but that said. Uh, I agree. Um, but, but, but like, doesn't it take a little bit away or deflate what you think of Bly at the end? You're like, yeah. you know, dude was just set up. He, he was a cherry picker. Like we would call in the street, like classic cherry picker. He pulled his own to a degree, but, but there's something that undermines his allure because of what Salone had to do to get him into the position. Um, I know it's supposed to be about teamwork and about humility, right. And, mm. and selflessness, but then I'm also like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it just really ruined my perception of Bly by the end. Who does, though, get one thing. He gets the injured player sports trope, right? Because he he's the hero who is willing to piss off his coach, go against the norm, and go save his rival, right? Teammate slash rival, but 
I would say at that point his rival because Mimo, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. The Memo. Sort of Zo- Memo, thank you. The Zoro romantic <laughs> figure we haven't <laughs> talked about yet. He's a weirdo too. He's a whole another character that's a, that's a lot to untangle, right? How he's jokingly pulls off his wedding ring to get back to <laughs> Stallone's character. Um, I liked him. He was just like a total heartthrob goofball. But but then he becomes kind of a, a dick and tries to take the the spotlight when it wasn't his it wasn't it wasn't his position right um you know he's getting egged on by the terrible virago of an ex-wife we've already <laughs> talked about but but that said like that shows Bly being himself like a bigger person than the race and that's a good moment but i love how he gets injured and he has to like jump on his foot 10 times or whatever that's that's to- didn't that remind you of the mighty ducks with uh the hurt wrist where he has to <laughs> turn the stick over exactly the same as that how about you mikey did you notice any sports tropes that were prominent for you that really stuck out that we haven't uh discussed yet or anything uh, along that line as a as like a sports film i think the one major one that we haven't come across yet is uh the one where joe got his nickname which is uh hummer oh yeah uh and the sports trope of being in the zone you know when he's driving and he starts humming and the first test race and they're asking, you know, why is he humming? Well, he's in the zone. And, you know, that's a typical sports trope is that, you know, when a racer or a player is, you know, focused and it's just them and the the goal or it's just them and the, the track, they're just in themselves. And, you know, we see that at the end of the film when Jimmy starts humming. And he's focused and he's in the zone. And that's how he's able to come back and win the race. Uh, So that's one that really stood out to me is just that typical trope of, you know, the premier athlete so focused that they're just in on themselves and and in the zone. Perfect. Perfect. Yes. The other sports trope is that every female, right, only exists to prop up the men. None are given a, a reasonable backstory in any way. And even the one, like I said, who's presented as like, the voice of you know the women's movement if you will our reporter who's who's writing something about like male dominance in sports is her thesis or her book right like how reductive is that like i'm writing a book on male dominance in sports like what publisher is publishing that like it doesn't have like a you know some colon marks and like the next fucking 10 words like the rest of your thesis that, that's just my little nit- complaint about real life there if you're a phd or whatever she was and the irony to her too is she's kind of womanized throughout <laughs> so i'm scared right be like smacks her her essentially without dating her yeah definitely it's weird weird character um but i i kept thinking of the one that's between the two leads right sophia what's weird about her is i mentioned that synchronized swimming scene right they're like definitely in japan because they threw up a huge japanese flag in the background just to let us know right and they're at a pool Mm -hmm. and our star Bly is poolside and he's like how did you learn how to swim like that right she said something really like sarcastic and offhanded like ribbit or a frog taught me i don't know exactly what she said but what's weird is like that actress in real life was a professional synchronized swimmer why not just give her five minutes of film time to give her a little extra oomph because i don't know she was weirdly placed in the movie as this hanger on her not because like she should be less than but it's a bit weird that she got dumped and then before she ended up hooking up with the with the rival right with our star our protagonist fly she's going to these races again and again and i kept saying in my head they're already split up she like left her ring on the table in the very first scene and we have like three races between where she's following them around the world but they're broken up it made zero sense so i don't know that credit card <laughs> <laughs> that's what's been happening she's been charging it to a 
to Brandenburg. He's like, I don't check that statement. And he's like, oh, damn, I paid for all those trips. That was in the, that was left on the cutting floor. I'm guessing. That was left on the cutting board. But I was like, at least make her like a pro athlete or something. Yeah. And that like, make them like stick together for, for the fame or for the cameras and then have their side fling. I would have liked that more, to be honest, something that was more believable or credible, but well, yeah. like, sorry, cause John, cause you made a good point. I don't know what, like, again, her agency, what is she besides a significant other to a racer? Cause there's a one scene when he sees her, I thought she was a bartender at this party. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't, right? She was there partying, it seemed like, right? But she's literally next to a bar with drinks and stuff like that. It kind of goes with what you said with her, how does she get to these races? Like, she's basically a groupie for racers, it sounds like. To be to put it bluntly, like, yeah, there's no, like you said, there's no definition of what she does, whereas Gina is defined. She's a gold digger, right? That's, that is her, that is her identity in this. And like, those are all her qualities, like up until the moment she almost kills her, her and husband, right? <laughs> or not, you know influences decisions right come on baby get us that check get us that check right i can see where talladega nights gets its comedy for like cal and ricky bobby and his wife right you know the, the nefarious like reasons she leaves him right it's, i can see where that kind of gets like punctuated in those movies with this but like with this it's so surfacing like it sounds so vile to say it's these things but that's what the character's qualities are those are all the things that are attached to even like his brother like his brother is the quintessential bad manager Right. The person from your past that you just can't get rid of, even though it'll, it'll better your career. Right. But he's so reductive, just like the women in this, that like you don't really feel bad for him or care when he gets his punishment. Absolutely. How about you, Mikey? What did you think about the female characters? Did they pass the Bechtel test to you? Uh, I feel like, you know, it's it's this thing that we keep going back to. There's not enough depth. There's a real possibility that they could have gone a lot more with those characters. Like we could have had a lot more with Sophia and understanding kind of her relationship with Brandenburg and, and how that really affected her. We just see, you know, the ending of it right at the beginning of the film. And if it had been something where we had come uh, to get to know them as a couple and then see them break up, that would have had a little more depth to it with uh, Luke, the reporter. If there could have been a little more uh, understanding of, you know, why she's there, you know, we get kind of that uh, glossary explanation with Burt Reynolds' character explaining to Joe, hey, Luke is here. She's interviewing for this article for her magazine or whatever. You know, we don't see that payoff at the end. You know, we don't see the article, so to speak, that she's writing and getting all this information for. Uh, and then the same thing with Gina Gershon's character is, uh, you know, we've already explained, you know, what could have been. Uh, with her and getting the depth in her character. Uh, But it just goes back to all these characters is if there had been a little bit more focus on digging a little deeper, uh, maybe cutting out, you know, Memo's character, you know, maybe cutting out, you know, another character here and there and just really focusing on just a few characters. I think you could have had a lot better approach to that. You know, one film that was brought to mind is, as you know, we've been sitting here talking that I love is a racing film. And gets into the you know the depth of not just the racing but off the track is Days of Thunder you know with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman you know you get that off the track romance and get the on track rivalry with him and Rowdy you know you have both of those things and yet you're able to understand those characters and where they come from and here you don't really get the depth of understanding where they come from and where they're going yeah totally no there's there's no knowing outside of the framework of this film where these people really exist, right? That's why I was like, brought to synchronized swimming. Uh, I was thinking of Creed, right? And the deaf girlfriend in Creed and Creed 2, right? She's got she's got such 
you know, nuance to her character as, you know, the the solution to this predicament of underwritten characters. She would be our perfect representation, our perfect example. Yet here, we don't see any of that. Maybe that's because, as I noted earlier, right, they're supposed to be two and a half hours and they like totally trimmed it down in that DVD commentary as well, right? Salone, who is described as a narcissist in the most entertaining of ways, I guess has a ton of commentary about the female characters, according to the person who watched it. And it was funny because they said that he sounds strangely sexist and progressive at the same time. (laughs) And a nice recapitulation of what we're kind of getting at. Like there's something a little misogynistic about these female characters, yet they do feel like they're strong, independent, like progressive women at the same time. There's just nothing explicit that would lead you to think that, right? Like they resonate this fortitude, this autonomy, this selfhood, um, yet the story doesn't give them anything, right? It doesn't shade in their character in any way. So they kind of fall flat for reasons beyond their control because of the screenplay. At least that's my take. But yeah, anybody else have any, I guess, do we want to tackle like the big crash and explosion scene? How That's kind of like cliffhanger-esque, right? It's more of an action sequence. You know, if you want to talk about that crash in Germany, the only thing that really stood out to me besides the fact that the CGI was really bad, which didn't make sense given that there were crashes earlier in the film that were a lot more practical, that looked a lot cooler. But this one, you know, with the one in Germany with Memo, uh, it just felt like it was just way over the top with how they wanted to use the CGI. But in reality, if, if a wreck like that actually happened, the race would have been stopped. They would have red flagged it and they would have stopped everybody. So you wouldn't necessarily have had the scene where Brandenburg and Jimmy would stop in the middle of a race and go rescue. You would have had the rescue teams already out that way, even though it was in a remote area, they would still be dispatched quickly. And also you wouldn't have them still racing like that wouldn't even have been an issue. Uh, But other than that, uh, it's still a dramatic scene. And obviously it, you know, it punctuates the fact of uh, the sacrifice that Jimmy makes uh, to to help out his teammate uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have seen, you know, maybe, you know, a race or two earlier. Great points. And I've read so many takes on this that explained how unrealistic, right, the Formula One racing was, right? The CART circuit, I believe it's called, um, C-A-R-T. I'm not 100% sure on the top of my head. I think it stands for Championship Auto Racing Teams. Is that correct, Mikey? You know about this better than that, I that, do. That sounds, that sounds about right. It, it was a split off from Indy. So uh, before, I think it was like 96, 97, if I remember right, it was one organization. And then at that point, it split off. You had Indy, which was uh, the Indy 500 and a couple other races. And then you had CART. And CART kept going until about, 2007 2008 and it disbanded and so the IndyCar series that you have now is kind of like the aftermath of the dissolving of those two and then kind of coming back together okay perfect thanks for that quick history lesson because i'm a complete illiterate sports fan of this of this field so don't know much i find it highly entertaining I, I want to get into it, but I have not yet and i was reading though that some uh, people who are into the open wheel circuit that back in the sixties and seventies, it was commonplace for drivers to like end up having to 
rescue each other. But they said by the time this film was made, the setting, the modern setting, that would never happen. As you as you indicated, Mikey, the rescue teams would have been there in a flash. They would have stopped the race. Um, here's another question I have right before we go into our final ratings. When they have those other crashes, right, that happen on the course, what do they do? Like, do they now always stop the race? They just drive around them? Like, I was wondering, just in general, like, they're going around in laps, right? Just circles, basically. Like, how does a race continue when there's a huge wreck? Well, it depends on the circuit that you're on. So you have uh, road courses, uh, which are, you know, turn left, turn right. And then you have ovals where it's basically turn left. In most of the times when you have uh, road courses, uh, you have places where you can kind of get the cars off the track. If it's in a place where the wreck happens and they hit one of the safety barriers and it's kind of off, usually they will only have a caution flag or something of that effect where uh, they're going about half speed, where they're not going full throttle, but they're kind of just going slowly. Uh, But if it's a wreck that's like super serious, kind of like what I mentioned, how this wreck would have been uh, in Germany in this film, they would have red flagged it, which means they would have stopped everybody where they were. Nobody would move and they would get everybody off the track and get the car and the debris before they would then go back to a yellow and then go to green. Really cool. Uh, my other question too, I had one more is uh, you mentioned the ESPN anchors that they had on the film and they were really helpful in explaining some of the you know logistics of the sport. And one thing they mentioned, right, is there's four laps to warm up the tires, which I really like. That was really interesting to me to like think about. The thermodynamics, the safety, the friction, you know, the traction and all of that. But what I didn't get, right, is as they were saying that we see them finally hit that fourth lap and then they're they're in the race, right? And they're stacked. They're not like starting at the same even spot, right? And this happens a lot with racing, with bicycle racing, with track and field. And I never understand it. How do they make that fair? Like, how does one car get to be in the front of that and the other car, you know, at the far end, find itself stuck in the way back like what's the like tiebreaker there what's the determinant factor there yeah so what usually about the day or two before the actual race you have qualifying so they will get out there and they'll set their times and whoever has the fastest time will get the pole position or p1 uh in open open wheel racing that's usually what they say is p1 is pole position and then everybody else uh, follows in behind them Again, I'll recommend if you have not watched Drive to Survive on Netflix, the F1 series, it does a great job of explaining kind of all these little intricacies of Formula One open wheel racing. And they explain kind of the differences as to uh, starting. You have sometimes, you uh, depending on how the weather is, you may have a rolling start, which is kind of like what you see in the film where they're just kind of going and then take off. But you also have a, a standing start. And a standing start is... You have that warm-up lap where you get the tires uh, warmed up. Uh, Then they'll all kind of park in their position. So P1, P2, all the way down to uh, the last car. And then you'll see, usually up at the top of the starting line, uh, the light system. And you have, especially with F1, you have the lights kind of go green, 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 green. So like five or six that are in a row. And then they'll all just go black. And it's called lights out. And then the race will start. And so that's when you have like a standing start where they're all just standing there and then they just take off and accelerate. So it just kind of depends on uh, the weather and the track as to how they start. But the position of where they start is through qualifying, how they race and depending on how fast they are in qualifying is how they line up uh, at the start of the race. 
awesome. Thanks for filling us in on that. Cause it's super interesting to me. It's like almost more interesting than like anything else in this movie. I do wish they gave us more exposition for like the idiots in the room, right? The audience that like knows nothing. They tried to give a little, but like some sports movies are really nice to you when you don't know anything. Um, this one was just a little nice to you, right? Give you tidbits, right? Like there was a time when Sloan's character pulls off and he's pissed because they're like not really working on his car and they're giving us some technical mumbo jumbo that you would learn like you know like they're work- fixing his wing he doesn't need it fixed or something right it's really a strategic move but like not enough i wanted more of that so now we're there let's get to our final takes i'm curious to see where we fall on either side of this equation so let's start with you jordan we haven't heard from you in a sec would you consider this an underdog or an overrated film and why yeah i'm gonna go with overrated on this one it doesn't for me it doesn't really hit any of the qualifying things as we discussed in the past that you know stand out as like an underdog to me um it's just not one i'd come back to either right i've seen it i'm cool with it i don't think i'd catch it again if it was on fx unfortunately and like especially since we've been doing the stallone flicks lately right i have to kind of analyze it in the lens of like stallone this is like a bit of a letdown if i gotta be honest in terms of stallone i didn't get much stallone in this right he's very like we mentioned he's kind of just pops in here and there he has his wise tidbits um, he has that cool scene, though, like I mentioned, the cool scene where he collects the, the coins, right, when he gets to show off, but he doesn't really get to do anything outstanding in this, right? And that's something we've seen in all these movies, um, even when he's breaking out like World War II prisoners, right? He's still like the funniest dude in the room in that one, right? Yeah, in Victory, right? He's still the funniest dude. He's still the clever motivator, right? He's, you know, he's, he's the dude's dude in that one. In um, Death Race 2000, right? Machine Gun Joe is just like this it's one of my new favorite villains i think so i, I get it. it's, it's a bit of a letdown from like from us doing our, our salone scope too so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say it's it's uh overrated fair enough fair enough how about you mikey i think for me i would say you know i mentioned i i enjoy the film i understand its flaws so i would say it's underrated so i would say it's an underdog uh because there's still a lot of things to enjoy about it and i think that there's a lot of things that you can build on and really get a quality film it's kind of one of those things where people can watch this film and say this can work this can work i would change this i would change that and i think kind of we see that with some of these films that have come out like rush with the art of racing in the rain with this upcoming f1 film that brad pitt and joseph kaczynski are doing there's a lot to learn from this film especially for the time that it was it's something that i don't think was as appreciated as it could have been and even though it doesn't hold up as well as you know some other films of 2001 i still think it's one that you can enjoy even if it's you know just on in the background to watch awesome so i get i get to be the deciding factor and i'm going to certify it underdog absolutely Yes, it's decided. Let's put the stamp, the little puppy dog paws or whatever we want to put on it. I said I would bring the actual numbers on earlier in the podcast. This received 14% on the tomato meter with 111 reviews, 33% on the audience score with over 25,000 ratings. This is a whoppingly, that's not even a word, I don't think, hated film. Like people do not like this and they are not friendly in their takes on this at all. Like if you want to see some searing, searing snark, read some of the reviews of this movie. But let's listen to some of the positives first. And that my take is that this is highly entertaining. I would personally take this over a rewatch of Escape to Victory. Um, I think that's more classically and formalistically cohesive, a better film. But 
Uh, last night I, I tweeted about this as just being a blast. And I was like, Rennie Harlan's an auteur in his own crazy way, like Michael Bay is, in my opinion, after watching a few of his movies. Like he's definitely got this signature style. He's definitely a guy's filmmaker, right? Like he makes boys' films, right? Like um, I mean, the flashiness, the soundtrack, the sort of B movie soapy elements interlaced with the like blockbuster races it's really entertaining it's like a good flashy popcorn fun time i think of like knockoff of michael mann's heat den of thieves as being like an okay knockoff right for me this is like a knockoff of any given sunday and it's definitely nowhere near the ballpark of that movie right like you don't get the intricacies of you know a sports organization you know that's an actually amazing film so this is terrible in comparison but still even if it's in the same conversation i'm into it i'm into this enough to to, to classify it for me as an underdog movie but it's been a blast there's a lot that i think we uh rightfully critiqued about this and before we go mikey we have to hear your top three, your first time guests. We always do this with our first time guests, sports movies. So starting at number three, too, we got to make it dramatic. What are your favorite sports movies? You know, when you asked me this, I, I had to think for a minute, but then it, it's pretty easy for me. I would say three is the rookie, the uh, Dennis Quaid pick where he is uh, playing the pitcher and, uh, you know, the unexpected comeback that he makes. Uh, uh, and I actually just recently reviewed it over on my podcast, rewatched it. And so that one would be number three. Number two is Miracle, uh, the 1980 U.S. national hockey team uh, and their victory over Russia. That That's just an iconic film. And then number one is Remember the Titans. That one is a lot of sentimental feelings because that came out when I was in college. And uh, I always used it as motivation whenever I had flag football intramural games uh, to watch it. And my, uh, my best friend and I, we would constantly do the left side, strong side <laughs> banter back and forth before uh, flag football games. And so uh, that that to me, that's my top three. That's a solid top three. Solid, solid wall to wall. And I just listened to your rookie episode. So that's perfect that you brought that one up. Everyone check that out. It's on the Screen Nerds podcast and it makes a perfect segue. So great top three and tell people where they can find you because you cover a ton of sports movies on your pod. I was just listening to the Facey Nolan pod episode and um, I don't know, I saw countless sports movies on there. Tell people where to find you. You can even shout out some of your favorite episodes or sports movie episodes on there as well, if you want. So where can our underdog fans find you? Yeah, so you can find me anywhere you get your podcast, whether it's uh, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, just search Screen Nerds Podcast. Uh, and you can find me there. Really, I go into a lot of sports. I go, I love to say that it's about building a community of film and TV shows that we love and be able to talk about it and share that. And, you know, even though we, you know, we may have disagreements about, you know, things that we love or, or things that we enjoy, we should have a place where we can celebrate those things and, and be honest and talk about the critiques that we have, but just really enjoy them. You know, I actually just uh, highlighted a film. It's not a sports film. It's, it's a cinema film. It just released on digital today uh, as we're recording. Uh, it's called Pompo the Cinephile. It's a uh, anime film from Japan, and it goes into kind of the love of film and how how the characters in the film 
go about making their uh, epic film together. And so uh, that's an episode that I did a couple months back that I just thoroughly love and really enjoyed that one uh, and one that I would recommend. And yeah, I, I love sports films and I know that I'm going to be getting into uh, some of those rewatches like Miracle, like Remember the Titans. Uh, I'm pretty sure at some point I'm going to do Glory Road, which is another Disney sports film uh, that was very enjoyable with Texas Western and, and their national championship against Kentucky. Lot, lot to enjoy. So anywhere you can find podcasts or get your podcasts, uh, check us out at Screen Nerd Podcast. And then if you ever want to interact with me on Twitter, it's at Screen Nerds Pod. And then email is Screen Nerds Podcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Awesome. I wanted to see Pompo the Cinephile when they were playing at the AMC, but I didn't get a chance. So I'll definitely try to watch the film and then check out that episode simultaneously to get some good supplemental contacts. But anyways, thank you so much for coming on and giving a nice level-headed sober celebration of this film. I think you balanced uh, my ridiculous endorsement of it and Jordan's fair critiques of it. Um, I think you were perfect. He's a good mediator for this. Yeah. The mediator is the right word. And it's cool that you brought up an anime episode too, because we are just on a podcast. Just for our fans real quick, check out Anime Talk. We just did a deep dive, pun intended, into Grand Blue Dreaming. It's a very quirky series on Amazon Prime with a lot of shenanigans. Jordan, how would you explain this show? Oh man, that's a tough one. I just kind of describe it as like a like almost like Revenge of the Nerds tamed down for like audiences who are going into college, right? So for me, it'd be something like a um, American Pie-esque, right? But animated with those kind of shenanigans. The, the dealing of adolescence, right? Adolescence and trying to fit in is the, is a big theme in, in this one. Yeah, it's definitely a bit ribald, uh, naughty, uh, perverse even. There's a lot yes, of... Yeah, that's a good way of saying perverse. It's, it's a, definitely like a, a frat boy show, if you will, right? I think it's a fair thing. But I was also thinking it's kind of for fans of like the Lee. If you're a fan of that kind of like raunchy humor, right? That adjacent kind of humor, this might be for you. At the same time, though, right? It's kind of got like a Saved by the Bell yeah. 90210 aspect. It's about a group of people who have a common hobby, right? Which is scuba diving. And they're all in this like, you know, moment in time that's very unmoored, right? They're all in college. And, you know, it's about finding yourself, about exploring different worlds, right? Under the water, different worlds in terms of like becoming a young adult. And so, yeah, there's some poignancy to it, right? It's all those things we mentioned, right? Like a raunchy juvenile comedy, but then it's also got a little bit of a heartwarming bittersweetness underneath it too. Um, so yeah, check out that episode. We had we had fun chatting about it. Not technically a sports show, but at least like it's an athletic hobby, right? Scuba oh, diving. Yeah, yeah. Like, scuba diving, yeah, that's it's like surfing. It's a way of life, right? You know what I mean? Like scuba divers or like like skaters, you know, it's more of a mentality, like a lifestyle, if you will. Athleticism's at the heart of it as well. Though. True, true. There's definitely an embodied aspect to it. We should hopefully do a scuba diving so we can, you know, get into the weeds of that because it's one of the most interesting ones because it's more about okay. perspectival, observational skills. Yeah, um, we'll do the dive uh, Stranger Things. We'll start that episode for scuba diving. Is that, that fair? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. And then we'll go backwards to the first episode of that and do the basketball slash then <laughs> talk about how Dungeons and Dragons is also yeah. fitting of the genre. But anyways, we are rambling tonight. Sorry for our tangents. Thanks for listening. You guys can chirp and to like us and all the fun things that all podcast hosts bludgeon with you at the end of their podcasts with, uh, you know, the drill. So we love any of your, you know, interactions. That's it. Thanks for listening. Someone signed, signed us off with a cool Stallone accent or something funny. 
It's got to be Mikey. We need it for the archives of guests. Give us your best to loan, Mikey. Any, oh, any movie. Gosh. It doesn't have to be this one. It could be any movie. Oh, you had to put me on the spot there. It's like, I'll leave us with uh, one of my favorite quotes from Rocky Balboa. It's not how hard you get hit. It's about the fact that you keep moving forward. I like that. <laughs>